Yes, welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Gage Clark. This is episode uh, three of season two. Today, we have a special guest, Jeremy Hadfield, and we will be talking about bipolar disorder, among other things. Um, So why don't you introduce yourself, Jeremy? Yeah, happy to be here. I'm a student at Dartmouth College. I'm studying imagination and... Um, that's a special major with philosophy, neuroscience, I mean, uh, cognitive science, well, basically cognitive science and neuroscience, um, computer science, English and art. And I'm really interested in bipolar. Most of my knowledge has come from like, you know, a few classes, but mostly just like, uh, research. And I think I have a pretty heterodox view of bipolar, at least heterodox in the psychiatric context. Okay, so um, I guess I should ask, um, I don't know if you are willing to talk about it so much. I actually should have checked this before. Um, uh, Wait, do you consider yourself bipolar? Uh, Yeah, I definitely am bipolar. Um, I mean, (laughs) from like a psychiatric perspective, the answer is yes. I have like a diagnosis of bipolar two and a diagnosis of, I mean, it's an outdated diagnosis of bipolar two. That was my original. And then later was diagnosed with bipolar one with ADHD. Comorbidity. Interesting. So I actually believe that I am probably bipolar as well, but I am only officially diagnosed as ADHD. And as they were kind of like, basically they, they, thought that I could end up, I don't know, I took like a, a diagnostic exam and then they, uh, they kind of thought that I, they, they basically said I scored as schizotypal, but then, then I basically kind of came out to my doctor about like, like pretty, pretty obvious manic symptoms. And then they were like trying mood stabilizers mood stabilizers on me and I didn't like them and I kind of just like left psychiatry which I don't necessarily recommend anyone do that though but um but I'm pretty sure I'm probably bipolar 2 which is like like hypomanic right hypomanic and depressive yeah yeah and actually yeah an interesting thing is that they're fairly they're, it's obviously a spectrum um you know just as there's a schizophrenic spectrum there's a bipolar spectrum and in my view they're actually essentially the same thing they're on a continuum at least um they're the same biological causes produce both or vaguely i mean produce bipolar and schizophrenia you know they have the same genetic background um the only difference or not the only difference but the more significant differences in um, their expression and behavior. But I think that, yeah, bipolar one is like essentially the stronger version. It's like the, um, 
just like upgraded to bipolar one <laughs> people joke about that in like the bipolar community because people often get like they they level up they go from bipolar two to bipolar one um that happens usually in like late adolescence um when you get first diagnosed and then later on like you have your first manic episode and they're like okay you're bipolar one now um when in reality you know you were bipolar one all along they just didn't know it but yeah, bipolar 2 has a higher frequency of depressive episodes, and it also has a lower amplitude for its manic episodes, uh, which are called hypomanic because they're less intense. Um, they don't include like psychosis. Um, they're not harmful, essentially. So I'm curious, what kind of things, uh, what would you say are your like symptoms of mania? If you're willing to talk about it. Yeah, no, definitely. I am. Um, my mania is actually amazing. I, I love it. Like there's nothing, there's nothing I can say about my mania that would be negative. Um, actually that's not true. I can definitely, I can definitely, you know, put on some negative notes, but, um, the symptoms are essentially just straightforward. Hey, actually I can hear my feedback. Um, like my, my voice feedback and it's kind of distracting. <laughs> I think it happens whenever your mic is on. That is absurd. Um, let me fix that. that. No worries. But yeah, I'll continue. Um, yeah. So my, my symptoms of mania include like delusions of grandeur, um, really intense feelings of like euphoria. Um, I see that colors become more intense. It feels a little bit like being, um, honestly, I, I would say that the best approximation for someone who hasn't experienced mania is going to be, um, LSD or a very intense, uh, marijuana trip. And I have like a lot of inspiration. I'm like constantly racing thoughts they ha I have what like it's called psychomotor agitation, which means like I'm constantly moving around, feeling very like energetic. Um, I have like a lot of insomnia, which means I don't like sleep for I can like not sleep for 48 to 72 hours sometimes, and that's also something that triggers mania. But then I have um, I have like feelings of like increased intelligence, like in increased inspiration. Like I feel like I'm making connections faster than I normally do. I feel like I'm realizing things more. Um, and I feel like an intense sense of like fulfillment and meaning to life. Um, and that lasts for when it, when it's at its most intense, I've had like periods of psychosis. So for example, one interesting episode of mania that, that was pretty long happened when I returned to Dartmouth. Um, and I, I, so I was back on campus again and then I was like just experiencing tons of manic symptoms or really hypomanic. And then when the Notre Dame burned down, I had this really intense, crazy day um, that included a lot of weird like signs that seemed to me to be symbolic at the time. And honestly, like even now, I still have a hard time explaining why things happened in the order that they did that day. But essentially, they led me to this delusion where I thought that I had burned down the Notre Dame. I thought that I had been the one to like, psychically connect to the Notre Dame and like start a spark there. Um, I thought that I was like a force of chaos that was like influencing the world in really substantial ways. So that's, I think, you know, one of the more intense manic episodes I've had where I actually got to become pretty delusional. 
that's pretty interesting. Um, I actually get some similar things as that. Um, like, so for example, one of the weirdest things that I've had happen, um, I, I basically thought that, I, I don't know, the time was weird and there was like so many weird things that kind of led up to this. So it's like in context, I don't know if it's so irrational to think what I was thinking, but I thought that, well, basically, okay, I met, okay, I'm trying to think how much I even want to disclose about this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, basically, I've met my, this friend I have, and he kind of got us to like, me and my girlfriend to uh, try psychedelics with him. And then, like, I don't know, we got, like, really close and bonded and, like, I don't know. There were so many weird things about it, though. Like, everything was so far from social norms, basically. Like, everything that we were kind of becoming as a friendship. And, Radical transitions of norms. Yeah. Uh, and, like... Basically, there was, like, a point where I thought that he was, like, making fake accounts online and, like, talking to me through them. And then, like, I don't know, I, like, told him. I wasn't, like, super convinced of this, but when I told him that, he, he was just, like, Gage, I think you need to get help. And it was just, like, <laughs> it was a little bit intense, kind of embarrassing, I guess, but... um but I've had a lot of things like like how you described where like you, even with this whole coronavirus situation, I feel like I feel like kind of anything super intense can kind of elicit these narratives that we get convinced of that are very paranoid and um, potentially delusional. Yeah, I think um yeah, it's definitely triggered more by like craziness in the world as well. Like stress, it's stress triggered. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to have these beliefs because <laughs> it's kind of hard to simulate it. Like, um, during a, like sanity or during stability, um, you can't simulate having like genuine paranoid beliefs. Um, you know, I mean, there were times where I was pretty convinced that there was like a group of people who were chasing me which is like a very common schizophrenic and bipolar delusion. Um, you know, I was convinced that I was being pursued by the Illuminati or, or something else like that. And I was like, you know, I, I never was fully immersed in the delusion. I always like had some awareness that's not true. Um, kind of similar to like what you described where you didn't really believe it, but it still had some grip on me. And, you know, that's ultimately what convinced me that I had bipolar um was like those, those experiences with delusion essentially and i also sometimes you can get delusions as well even not during mania but during intense depression um and i actually think that part of what explains depression is viewing it as a social delusion um you're constantly thinking for example that like you don't have value that other people don't care about you that there isn't like any role you can play in the world and then you kind of delusionally put down anything positive um, and I even had like experiences where I thought that I could completely escape from like my life and just like, I would run away into the woods in Canada 
And this is like a very serious thought that I had um, during a suicidal period where I thought that like, instead of committing suicide, why don't I just like escape from everything? And I go to Canada and I live in the woods. <laughs> um, and so there's definitely a depressive element of delusion as well. Also, um, May, no, I do not take medication. And we, we can talk more about that later. So uh, with the audience, I figure we can, uh, at some point, we can open up and go to the discussion channel and then sort of like address uh, commentary and uh, questions and stuff like that. Um, so what you said about uh, delusion, delusion is a really interesting topic. Like, I feel like... Like, I don't really think that, I don't know, like the way that I view delusion, I have trouble with trying to kind of like philosophically assess it because like, like I feel like when people kind of colloquially talk about delusion, it's, there's all these assumptions about what is true or not true. And I feel that the way that we assess what's delusional or not, it kind of disregards a lot of kind of philosophical um, ideas that, that the same people probably don't often reject in the context of like discussing philosophy. But I think, I think that um, like, for example, I think that someone who is very afraid will have a lot of perceptions and biases that guide them in a different way than people who are not afraid. And like a good example of how that gets kind of weird is right now with this whole pandemic situation, if, if only a little bit of people were freaking out about it, um, that would be like, it, it would pretty classically follow schizophrenic mentality i feel yeah and actually one one really interesting thing is that the majority of the people at least in my circles who were really aware of the pandemic early on were precisely like the neurodivergent people um or like the non-normies as some people would call them um so like bipolar adhd autistic people um, schizophrenic people, they were the first to notice, oh shit, like this is going to be a real pandemic. We've got to worry about this. And they were talking about this in like early February or late February, um, before anyone else was. And at the time it probably seemed like delusion to people who weren't aware. Um, but really it was just like paying more attention to signs. And obviously there are times when like that group of people is wrong. Um, and they like do have kind of like delusional elements, but that's kind of the risk of being willing to take, um, unconventional information and unconventional inferences seriously is the risk that you'll have some false beliefs or delusional beliefs, but at the benefit of sometimes being incredibly correct. Um, so like our friend Danielle, right. Who like was able to really capitalize on the, on the coronavirus situation by shorting the entire stock market, the second big short. And, um, you know, she did that partially, because she was able to take information seriously that a lot of people who, you know, are maybe too anchored to this, what they think is reality or what they think is normality, 
um, and don't and like don't really consider things that are outside of the scope of that experience or of that normal bounds. Um, and because of that, because she was able to go beyond those bounds, she was able to really like see things. And I think that's one of the adaptive benefits of bipolar and schizophrenia. They serve as shamans in a way. Um, and we can talk more about the shamanistic hypothesis later. Yeah, I really like the... So as a quick for those who are uh, listening in, the idea with shamanism is kind... Or at least for my version of it, you might disagree, I'm not actually sure, but but um, basically this idea that... Um, well, originally I was thinking in the context of uh, like taking chemicals that will basically throw you out of the narrative of society. Uh, and p- part of this is that the narrative of society, everyone is kind of submitting to a consensus because uh, pr- probably partially because they're doubting their own perceptions because it would be unrealistic if you were it's kind of it's kind of like a bystander effect in a way it's like it's like you're it's unrealistic if you are just the one person who is right about something and everyone else is wrong it's like we have this uh, tendency to just assume that that can't be possible and um but there's also a lot of other things. We get really addicted to the narratives that are like really exciting. Like right now, everybody is excited about the end of the world, basically. And and if we just kind of go back to normal after this, I don't necessarily think that's going to happen. But but in the past, when things kind of return to normal, it's like everyone just kind of is maybe let down a little bit that nothing uh, yeah. happened. But if you imagine like uh, someone who takes like, say, like uh, psilocybin mushrooms or something, they will kind of be ripped away from the narrative of whatever's going on. And then um, they're kind of like breaking the addictive cycle of being like addicted to all the narrative that everyone else is just like hyping on on a daily basis to where they can come up with a different interpretation and then just come back to reality and create a new narrative that everyone else can be addicted to. And like in the context of bipolar disorder, uh, they might be more naturally not uh, as clingy to the narratives that everyone else is, um, at least hypothetically. Or what do you think about that? Is that how you think of it? Um. Yeah, pretty close. I have like a pretty so okay. I'll, I guess I should go over my overall view of bipolar. Um, so I think that first of all, it's pretty absurd that a lot of people think that mental illnesses do not have adaptive benefits or that they are just mutations. Um, I think that the scientific evidence is very clear that um, most mental illnesses are adaptations. Their genetic frequency is too high to be explained as anything else, um, which means that they had natural selection pressuring you know, them to increase in prevalence. You know, for example, schizophrenia and bipolar each are about 1% of the population. Bipolar, if you include the entire spectrum, is about 2%. Um, that prevalence is way too high if it was merely a mutation, and it is especially too high if it's a mutation that had negative effects in our evolutionary history. 
So I think the evidence is clear that these disorders, as we call them, have adaptive benefits and that they actually helped our ancestors to survive. They are part of the reason uh, that we are alive today. And it's also part of what makes us human. Um, then to go deeper into that, I think that, you know, there was a transition in our evolutionary history where the schizophrenic genes evolved, um, where there was a mutation. And then quite rapidly, um, these schizophrenic genes, um, which affect like lipids in the brain, essentially, they spread to the entire population and, or not the entire population, but to a subset of the population. Um, and they reached a level where it would be, it's like kind of the ideal medium between prevalence and um, like over prevalence, where if you have too many bipolar people or too many essentially shamans, too many mentally ill people in a population, then that starts to have negative effects. And if you have too few, then that also has starts to have negative effects. Um, and so there was group selection. Um, there was also some individual selection. But I think that I think that primarily what explains why bipolar and schizophrenia have such prevalence is because of group selection, where the groups which had shamans or which had bipolar and schizophrenic people were able to survive longer. Um, and I don't think that the evidence is enough for this for me to like really go into that belief entirely um, to really like double down on it. But I, do, I, I have a really strong intuition and there is some fairly strong evidence that it's the case. So this is mostly coming from a paper by, um, by the way, let me know if my mic uh, stops because I have to like, um, I'm using push to talk. So can you hear me right now? Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, beautiful. Okay. Yes. So. Um, the paper that really changed everything for me was, first of all, this book called Shamans Among Us, Schizophrenia, Shamanism, and the Evolutionary Religions, Origins of Religion. Um, so it argues that um, essentially there are, there are deep commonalities between all shamans and like in, in, in anthropology, you can study tribal cultures and there's a very deep similarity in their shamanistic process. Um, it follows the same steps and it has like similar cultural features. And it also argues that um, schizophrenic and bipolar people appear about once in a Dunbar number. So a Dunbar number, right, is the, the group size of our tri tribal groups. And also like essentially it's the group size that humans can handle. handle. And it's about 150 people. Um, so that's the Dunbar number. And, you know, the Dunbar group predicts that essentially we can handle like about it predicts like what level of friends and how, like what quantity of friends in each level we can handle. So for example, we can have about one or two highly significant partners. We can have about five close friends. Um, we can have about 15 friends in the circle beyond that uh, going up to the tribal size, which is 150 people. And they found that for example, uh, you know, anthropologically tribes are about this size, that ancient villages were about this size, that research groups are about this size. Um, essentially, it's like the level at which um, your working memory um, and other trade-offs prevent you from handling more people in a group and groups have to split up after that. So the fact that schizophrenia and bipolar people occur about once in a Dunbar number suggests that the shaman was maybe an important element of the group. And so he explains that in terms of one, like a facilitator of group processes where 
um, like these shamans encouraged group cohesion and allowed the group to kind of unite around mythological beliefs. They were the creators of myths and myths are essential to um, human survival. They, they, they explain a huge part of human behavior and like they're essentially an adaptation that we have, a social adaptation, a cultural adaptation. And the shamans were the ones who created the myths. Um, but they also were the ones who kind of predicted things are the ones who allowed the tribe to exploit potential new opportunities and new environments through novelty seeking that they would never have explored if they had remained like very stable, sane all the time in the same way that I was describing how like sometimes this like tendency that leads to a delusion is also a tendency that leads to a huge amount of adaptive benefits. Um, or if you have too many shamans in the population, then it might become delusional. But if you don't have enough, then it won't be novelty seeking enough and it won't be stable. It'll be too stable and then it won't really um, find opportunities. But also, um, one explanation is that they were important in group splitting, where the shamans were the ones who led the groups to split. So once it exceeded the Dunbar number, the shamans were the ones who essentially said, like, we're going to this new place now. We're going to leave. We're novelty seeking. And I think that's partially validated by the fact that DRT2 dopamine genes, which I know like the, we're kind of, we're both kind of skeptical about the evidence on this, but it seemed, I mean, it's, it is true that the prevalence of DRT2 genes, which um, produce novelty seeking increases the farther you get from our evolutionary origin in Africa, um, which suggests that essentially the most novelty seeking people were the ones who made it to like the distant islands in Polynesia and Micronesia and Australia, whereas the less novelty, pe novelty, pe novelty seeking people tended to stay closer to the, to our evolutionary origin, um, and not traveling to new environments as much. And it might also explain, and this is one I'm more skeptical of. It might also explain differing levels of bipolar and hypomania in modern countries. So for example, one researcher found he, he's the author of the hypomanic edge. He found that, he, he, he thinks that the prevalence of bipolar or specifically hypomania, um, which is produced by bipolar two is far more common in the United States. And he thinks it's partially explained by selection for hypomanic people during migration or immigration. Um, they were the most likely people to travel to America. Um, and also because America incentivized it, essentially there was, there were better selection pressures in the United States for hypomanic people. So yeah, essentially my view of shamanism is that yeah, shamans are essential. They're they're very important in group selection, and there are like deep similarities in the shamanistic process. But on a more positive, like kind of uh, ethical view, I think that our approach to mental illness right now is atrocious, um, and it's actually worse than nothing. Um, it's it's positively negative. Um, it's essentially a kind of punishment. Um, it's like it's the, it's not a rehabilitation approach, even though it seems to be one it's more of a punishment or um, the same approach we take to criminal justice is applied to mental health. And this is evidenced by the fact that um, life outcomes for mental illnesses like schizophrenia in particular um, are actually better in developing countries than they are in developed ones. So if you look at like a schizophrenic person, are they likely to um, commit suicide? Are they likely to have a stable job in the future? Are they likely to have a, a long-term relationship? Those kinds of trends, those are those levels of like the positive trends are actually higher for schizophrenic people in developing countries than they are in developed countries. And I think that alone just demonstrates that our entire approach is counterproductive, um, that it's deeply harmful. 
And there's some evidence that applying a more shamanistic model where the narrative is changed and instead of calling a person sick or like you have this terrible disease that like ruins your mind, instead saying you have a sickness, but it's a shaman sickness. It's like this potential gift and you essentially have to go through the sickness in order to have this gift. And that's actually the approach that many tribal cultures use and they call it in various native languages the shaman sickness. Um, in Nepal, this is still the approach they use for mental health in some areas. And so um, I think that's a really positive. And I think that these narratives, these social narratives, have a deep effect on people's psychology. If you believe that your mental illness is a serious harm for your entire society, it's more likely to have harmful symptoms. And so I think that there's an extent to which these mental illnesses are not natural kinds. Um, they're not like things that inherently have to exist. But they're things which are produced by the interaction of things that were adaptations in our evolutionary past or benefits um, suddenly manifesting as harms because of the harmful structure of modern society. Okay, that's my spiel. <laughs> okay, good. I do agree with a lot of it, but I also have a couple things that I took some notes on that it. Um, so. So the first thing, I guess this one will be easy first. Um, so there is how you mentioned the developing countries versus um, like the first world. Uh, so one thing that might be important to consider with that is you also noted that like say in America, that's where there might have been like a selection selection pressure. Um, so I think that part of that can be like, so that the rate of like these traits might be higher in the first world countries as well. If there is a selection pressure for certain risk traits, for example, um, hmm. that's a good point. I don't think that that explains why Europe's outcomes are worse as well. You know, because there wasn't as much selection pressure in Europe, potentially. Um, I, that, I mean, that might explain a small proportion of it. But I also think that if it is true that the prevalence of mental illnesses are not just bipolar and schizophrenia, um, or really it's bipolar that predicts novelty seeking. Um, if, if the prevalence of lots of mental illnesses and not just bipolar is very high in these countries, then that can't be explained by the novelty seeking tendency. And so it, it has to be explained by something else. And I think it's partially explained also by the negative approach that um, predominantly Western developed countries take to mental illness, um, the psychiatric model, the medical model. Um, I think that partially explains the prevalence, but also, you know, it's underreporting. There's a lot of underreporting in mental illness in developing countries. Um, another thing that uh, I think is kind of important. So I think, with I'm lately I'm a little bit like kind of uh, changing my thoughts about this idea of migration and like the DRD4 gene. I think something that doesn't get looked at as much is the way that some of this can be cultural. I, it probably is both, but as an example, let's say the one out of 150 or the Dunbar number, um, 
let's say that is the number of naturally occurring, uh, let's say novelty seeking, for example, or something. Um, I think one thing is that a lot of them, when they are growing up, so, so if you consider like them versus the rest of the society, the rest of the society, I think over time is kind of adapting to a more like repetitious lifestyle. And the ones who are novelty seeking uh, will be like growing up there and then eventually getting sick of it and more likely to leave. So like, so like rather than purely just, selection pressure uh well it kind of is but it's 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 also cultural is kind of what i'm also getting at is so like uh them choosing to leave because they're sick of it uh is like faster than uh like a genetic change or evolution of it for example like in a, in a sense it would become that and i think that like places especially with america there's a dynamic where I like say San Francisco, a lot of the people will migrate there trying to like implement their kind of novelty seeking ideas and then be either they will succeed or they could potentially fail and become homeless. And like, basically that's probably the type of person that's going to, lose their mind, whereas the person who's successful will just be kind of like uh, highly rewarded for it. And I think that I think that part of the distinctions between people that get diagnosed as either like a manic disorder or like schizophrenic, I think part of that has to do with how successful the person is and how success or failure either uh, makes things better or worse and like how those would affect kind of anybody. So like, so with that, for example, uh, the genes, some of them may be something that just makes you more willing to take risks. And then that means that you're essentially more willing to uh, face the possibility of like going homeless, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you will be happy with going homeless. Right. <laughs> but, um, so I think like, because of that tendency, like, so, so my idea of what bipolar is in contrast to schizophrenia is that I think that there are certain genes for bipolar that allow, and I don't think this is all of them, I think life's, life situations can also manifest in pretty much identical behaviors. Like if someone wins the lottery, they're probably going to exhibit like bipolar-like traits, but also, so like these genes, yeah. I think that some of them are speeding up, like, like so like for example, certain serotonin receptors, uh, there's like a enhanced... Uh, signal transduction for 5-HT2A receptors, which is related to fear extinction and also like the effects of psychedelics, for example. Um, I think that they have a natural tendency to uh, 
kind of just be more prone to undergoing fear extinction, which means compared to someone who lacks this, they will overcome, like say they uh, experience something horrible because of the risk taking, like they gamble and lose all their money. I think that those people will kind of over time, uh, their fear will just, the fear of gambling will diminish faster than for a normal person. And so like, in a sense, the people who lack this trait will probably essentially be more traumatized in general. Like the, the reason people are risk averse is essentially trauma. They are traumatized by the outcomes, the negative outcomes of their risky behaviors. And then for like to, to finish it uh, with schizophrenia, I think the distinction is that, um, that they are essentially lacking this healing tendency more than the general population usually, or as I said with bipolar, that the circumstances can also heavily like shift how a person person's life outcomes. So like with the schizophrenic, you could imagine that they become highly risk averse and just start avoiding everything and then the consequences of doing that are pretty bad as well. Like if, like if, like imagine the people that are living their life as if it's always been a pandemic and they're always quarantined because they think there's like radiation outside and they're like deeply afraid of this or something like that might be like some kind of schizophrenic delusion. And then you can imagine like just decaying away kind of pretty much. And you wouldn't really have the opportunity to even grow or do like different things like that. So I think a lot of them are kind of like stuck in a permanent rut because of feeling overly like stressed out or traumatized. And I think like with what, uh, like with the idea of like shamanism and like religion and stuff like that, I think that the kind of way that a lot of people that like the kind of cliches that we associate with schizophrenia in like America, for example, I think that they are not exactly like how, uh, it's not like necessarily the natural or normal, I guess, way that these traits would manifest. Instead, it's like, um, well, well, let me think. So like if a person is having an inclination to come up with like strange ideas that is very socially risky. So I think with someone who's more manic and has like that recovery thing, I think that they will come up with like a silly idea that maybe they get mocked and bullied by their friends, but then they kind of recover and then they come up with more silly ideas and they keep doing it until they actually start coming up with good ideas. Like maybe, maybe only like 10% or 5% of the ideas are good, but they start accumulating. Like they, they would essentially have an inclination for just constant learning and curiosity that doesn't get bullied out of them. Whereas I think most like, I guess normal people would kind of more quickly become ashamed of their sense that they're not intelligent enough to be curious, basically like they will be shamed by their 
ideas that come off as dumb. It's like how people don't raise their hand in classes, basically. And then with the schizophrenic, it's a maybe even more strange case where uh, they might have an inclination to come up with explanations, but I think that they are very aversive to... Like, like, I don't know that this, the situation of schizophrenia is like way more complicated, but you can imagine like they come up with like a silly idea at first and then they get bullied and then they go, uh, rejecting like what, like they basically like refuse other people's rejection of their strange ideas and like double down usually, or become like really narcissistic. Like the cliche of conspiracy theorists is that everyone else is just like dumb sheep and, stuff like that. But then like, that's something that's even interesting because the way that people view conspiracy theorists is also like dumb sheep and it's kind of like strangely symmetrical. Um, well that, that point right there, I think seems random. It's like something I mentioned before, but I don't think I should actually tangent off in that direction to be honest. So I'm sorry, I'm probably going to leave that right there so what do you what do you think so far yeah i definitely agree with most of those thoughts i think that um the social defeat hypothesis of schizophrenia is pretty convincing i also um i think that might explain some of the variation between uh bipolar and schizophrenia and in, in that i think that if there is trauma or social defeat um, in significant ways, especially in early childhood, that can make someone who has a genetic, has a stronger genetic predisposition towards bipolar instead becomes schizophrenic or schizoaffective um, or have more schizophrenic tendencies. And it also will just like essentially trauma activates mental illness in a way, um, but it also can activate more schizophrenic mental illness. Um, and I think that, yeah, one, one, one great quote, this is a thought from earlier, so I'm kind of going back a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the philosophical element that we assume that it's a delusion um, because it's essentially not average and we just like, it, essentially insanity is a lack of conformity to the average delusions. Um, or as Stacey Joy said, Maybe the mind of the majority is always the healthy mind simply by virtue of its numbers. Maybe it's the definition of madness to believe I'm right and everyone else is wrong, to find my thoughts rational and reasonable when almost the entire world finds them damaged and flawed. Um, so I think that in a way, and Nisha talks about this as well in his discussion of madness, I think in um, Daybreak, he says that essentially madness gives you the freedom to... Um, it gives you the freedom to explore. It gives you, or it allows you to essentially affirm yourself. Like um, it gives you the madness gives you the level of self-confidence required in order to jump into really difficult um, problems and dangerous beliefs. And essentially madness um, is necessary for these like serious acts of art. And he notices this trend in like Greek literature and ancient literature in general, that the people who are the most visionary are always portrayed as mad. They're always, they are always mad people because 
they're the ones who madness essentially makes it seem like it's a gift from the gods. It makes it seem like it's shamanistic. And so it's possible that um, this element of shamanism and mental illness is necessary in order to um, ha- uh, in- induce uh, transformations in societies. Um, and this is what um, the paper, there's this paper, Schizophrenia, the Illness That Made Us Human, that talks about what, what explains the cultural explosion around 10,000 to 15,000 years ago, which developed the emergence of, our, of agriculture, but more importantly, what explains the cultural explosion which began 100,000 years ago, where art, music, religion, and warfare all emerged around the same time, um, which we can see in the archaeological record. Like Tons of new tools appeared, um, religion appeared, art appeared, organized warfare appeared, but this isn't associated with an increase in brain size, um, and we can know this archaeologically. So what explains that? And the argument is that it's essentially it's schizophrenia or uh, schizophrenic genes that explains it. Um, essentially, there were some changes that led to changes in phospholipids in the brain. And those changes are what produced the development of, of the schizotypical um, and bipolar brains. And those led to these massive cultural transformations where essentially all of these things can be explained by the creativity or the um, strange behavior of these mad, of these new mad people and the response of everyone else to them. Not everyone needs to be creative. Um, and it would actually be a lack of, it would be negatively, it would be negative for society, negative for, our, for adaptation, for natural selection, if everyone was creative because it would prevent social cohesion and social organization. Um, but they found that through like studies in Iceland where they can trace mental illness really well and also some other studies on like twins, for example, they found that schizophrenic people, bipolar people, schizoaffective people, schizotypical people, dyslexic people, sociopathic people, people with borderline personality disorder, alcoholics, high achievement, extraordinary energy levels, charismatic leadership and creativity are all grouped into the same families. These like Pandora's box families. And so they found that, for example, 22% of children of schizophrenics, but zero children of normal individuals demonstrated near professional music skills. Um, that's a pretty incredible result. And also, none of the children of normal parents in this Icelandic study were intensely religious, while almost a quarter of the children of schizophrenics were highly religious, even without having schizophrenia. So this suggests that there are genetic effects on the entire families of schizophrenic people, um, that led to these changes um, where like, you know, there's like, there's kind of a dyslexia and schizotypical group. There's a manic depressive or affective disorder group. And then there's a schizophrenic group, but those are all genetically linked um, disorders. And I mean, I see this in my own family, for example, where like I'm bipolar, my dad's bipolar. I have a sibling who's dyslexic. um, And you know, I have siblings who have like similar neurodivergence, but even my like uh, neuro neurotypical siblings also have some pretty substantial differences, I think. Um, and that's like pretty borne out by the evidence. So there's essentially this common ground. There's this raw material genetics that um, produces mental illness, but it's adaptive. Um, it leads to this phenomenon of shamanism that explains the creativity explosion that happened 100,000 years ago. So I think the thing you mentioned about, so I have a kind of possibly different interpretation of the thing, the, the, 
what is it? So you mentioned like how madness might have been what was at the beginning of like the agricultural uh, shift to society and stuff like this. And I think what is maybe possible is that it could almost be flipped around where um, yeah, the natural state of things before people started to like settle into these societies might have actually been like a status quo of uh, bipolar type tendency or manic tendency to deal with the kind of chaos of nature. And then as we started to build like these like secure spaces, I think that the type of people like, like it's kind of what I, I think I might've already said it uh, in this earlier, but um, kind of like you would, so you would see, uh, selection towards like cohesion and agreeability in that state where everyone must be cohesive for the society to stay stable basically like uh, it works better if everyone concedes to the same beliefs and stuff like this for example and I think that it might be the combination of the two kinds of things that allows like large societies to form, but also like progressive societies to form where the progressive elements of the society might be linked to like mental illness, basically. And I think a lot of the things about mental illness aren't inherently about like, I don't think that it's about people always being more prone to suffering, although I think that's a lot of it, but I think a lot uh, more what might be happening is a lot of people like like think about if a cohesive society is developing like you can imagine generation after generation um they just basically like learn how to exploit their their immediate surroundings so much over time over the generations they learn how to maximize their uh life quality in a sense not necessarily but like security and uh, like pleasurable living uh, situations and kind of getting rid of as many problems in that local region as they can. And as they do that, they are also building this system where everybody is collaborating and has like very specific roles to fulfill. And I think those who don't like the situation would also be like migrating out basically. And, so, like, with this tendency, I think that a lot of those with mental illness are, like, basically the people who cannot leave the situation. Like, they have no option to do that, and they are kind of um, not as accepted in the system. Like, the system already has, like, a spot for everyone except them, and then they basically become miserable, and I think that... Like, they're basically not welcome and stuff. It's like, like, so that would be like especially relevant for something like schizophrenia, where like maybe they are creative at first, but then the society decides that their creativity is useless and they basically become uh, ruined in a sense. And I think, 
a lot of the symptoms that arise from it. Like, I feel like if you'd like removed the horribleness of that situation, it might not even seem like a crazy person. Like it might seem like, like how we look at someone like maybe Steve Jobs or like just, I don't know, someone like that. We might think, oh, that guy seems very normal and not so crazy. Like, like I'm sure he did lots of crazy things, but I think that most people in general are not like deeply afraid of him at like a first interaction. Like he probably comes off as like highly sociable, accepted and stuff like that. And like he's not, he's also not experiencing hallucinations. I think hallucinations are trickier, but I do think that stress like basically promotes them and that there could be like a, there could be a adaptation for becoming like highly biased to perceive threats and stuff like that, for example, when you're, when they're under stress. Um, I think that could happen to anyone, but it might also be that like people who are like highly perceptive can more easily become stressed, for example. Like if you think of like when you're a child, uh, everyone has this idea that it's like you're naive and the world is beautiful and like innocent and pure and so, like, if you imagine the opposite of that, you might think, like, like even most of us right now, I think, in this, like, situation, like, like personally, what I feel like in today's world is, like, like, the world is ending, like, everybody is, like, horribly toxic and abusing the crap out of each other, and, like, they're all traumatized and just, like, exploiting each other and, like, trying, like, they're pretty much, like, it just feels like the adult world is, like, a bunch of people becoming, like, psychopaths over time and, like maximizing their own well-being at the cost of everyone else or like trying to find mm. ways to like enslave each other even <laughs> but um yeah like just just to finish it like basically just the stress of that i feel like is maddening already and so those who are more like attuned to notice those things i think might actually be more prone to getting intoxicated by their stress to the point that it actually decreases their cognition and like produces like hallucinations and halts their like development and like it's it's like a weird thing because at first it sounds like it's a thing that helps you accelerate your learning but then you probably reach a point where if you can't cope with the stress of what you're realizing about life then maybe you start spiraling downward into a toxic existence basically yeah, I think, yes. Um, it's difficult to have the shaman sickness. And like, um, if you don't, if you don't make it out of the shaman sickness, um, then it can lead to this negative spiral. I think that, um, maybe we should, we, maybe we should both speak for shorter periods so we can directly like respond to each of the things. Cause there's like, yeah. <laughs> um, there's like a lot to respond to. Let's see. The first thing was civilization. Um, and like how that affects. Yeah. Um, I think you were saying that mental illness, especially bipolar and schizophrenia were associated with the rise in civilization, um, or essentially like agriculture. And yes, I think that's very true. Um, and in fact, one, one thing that might explain that is the importance of diet. Um, when we switch to an agricultural way of life, most of the 
arachidonic acid and docosahexaenoic acid, or really AA and DHA, disappeared from the environment. Um, and so one person who connected, and like actually quite a few researchers connected bipolar and schizophrenia to certain genes that influence phospholipids in the brain, and they found that the availability of brain-specific essential fatty acids was reduced by the agricultural diet. And that led to greater metabolic abnormalities, um, which led to both more creative and more disturbed behavior. Um, and so this essentially happened you know, 10,000 years ago with the transition to agriculture. And so part of what explained it might be a change in diet that led to a change in uh, essentially our, um, how our genetics are expressed where we have the genetic predisposition, but because of the um, deficits, deficits in brain-specific essential fatty acids that led to different brain development, which increased the prevalence of schizophrenia and bipolar, and also the severity of them. Um, and that had some benefits in terms of its creativity, but also you know some negatives in terms of like, it's tough to have those disorders, obviously. Um, and it's also can lead to like higher levels of divergent, uh, abnormal kind of delusional behavior. But then I also think that one other thing that might explain it is, you know, Foucault talks about in the 19th century and the 20th century, this rise in capitalism and this essentially like division of labor, all these elements of capitalism are particularly alienating for people with mental illness. And so he said that essentially part of what might explain mental illness is a difficulty adapting to the modern industrial society. Um, and he notices this, there's some evidence for this. And um, there's this really interesting study that did research on the what what happened in psychiatric institutions in Wales, Scotland, and England and from between the medieval era and the Renaissance era and the industrial area. So they looked at like psychiatric records of like these institutions, the building of different psychiatric institutions, um, records of how many people were there, like a lot of like essentially archaeological like deep dives into history. And they found that with the rise of capitalism in areas and the rise of industrial society, division of labor, um, greater secularization, all these tendencies of modern industrial society were associated with rises in mental illness. So there's pretty promising evidence that really it's produced by this alienation to industrial capitalistic society that leads to some mental illness. Yeah, I think I would agree to that for sure. Like the way I kind of view it, I mean this this will maybe sound kind of tragic, but but I feel like like I think I tried to touch on it earlier. I don't know if I kind of got lost in the rabbit hole, but uh like say like with San Francisco, I think one of the things that can be crazy is that basically like the novelty seekers might go there first. Like I mentioned the homelessness, I guess, but, but another thing that happens is like you there, there's pretty much like these people who are being creative and trying to market their creative idea to others. And then like build an army of people that are going to live like incredibly boring lives, building this like empire for them basically. Yeah. And I feel like, <laughs> Is it's like what if like some of the novelty seekers are kind of employing uh, other novelty seekers who really hate their non-novel job and then get like mental health problems? It's like it's like a weird like kind of sad thing, but um, yeah. 
there's definitely you definitely see this with Google, for example, where like I think the early people in Google were like super kind of non-conventional, uh, creative. They wanted to like be a part of this, and then like now that like, Google has an immense empire and it's like associated with status to be working there, um, and people think that um, like it's a stable job, it's high paying, it's it's essentially become a massive company. This leads to like a lot of incentives for essentially like. Um, like people who are less creative or who are have like, like essentially there, there's more incentive to be robotic within the company. Um, and I think that you see this in general, and this is like part of the explanation of like why there constantly needs to be group splitting. Um, because yes, maybe the original migrants to an area are going to be highly novelty seeking, but over time as the area becomes established and essentially the humans in that area, um, fulfill their evolutionary niche, um, that leads to lots more migrants to the area and to the point where it becomes alienating for the novelty seeking people, the original people who traveled there or the people who are on the schizophrenic spectrum, the people who are in these Pandora's box families that have the schizophrenic bipolar genes. Um, those people become alienated by the new established society that is built upon the um, original exploration of these same Pandora's box families. And so they then decide to do a group splitting. Um, and this narrative is like overly simplistic for sure. But I think that if we try to imagine it's it, first of all, I love evolutionary history. I think it's insane to imagine just insane in the best way. Um, really cool to imagine the way that humans actually dispersed across the planet and how, what that must've been like and how that explains a lot of like modern, um, a lot of the modern world. But yeah, I think that this could partially explain um, certain like elements of where individuals are distributed and, you know, how we traveled across the globe in human dispersal. Yeah. And like some of these places, like say Google, they might um, like they, they eventually will start to select, like culturally select or not necessarily uh, like breeding or anything, but they might select for employees that are more tolerant to their boring tasks because, of course, that's what they want. And then, like, over time, like, you could almost think of this as, like, a weird sort of form of gentrification, <laughs> which is, like, a really weird way to look at it. But, I mean, like, people actually do talk about that, though. They talk about, like, the techies taking over uh, San Francisco and stuff like that. And But it's, like, weird because, well, like, over time, like, with all the successful companies, like, they're eventually going to select people who are more tolerant to repetition and security-seeking people and then all the miserable novelty seekers will have to find somewhere else to go, pretty much. Um, yeah, that story sounds right to me. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty depressing. Uh, but also, like, in a way, it's it's um, it makes sense as a phenomenon that that would happen. Um, and it essentially means that, like, if you are in this group of people who are tend tend to be novelty seeking, tend to be creative, tend to be like um, the first to like exploit what we call a new environmental niche, um, which we can think of like modern company founding, like modern moving to like various cities. That's essentially the modern equivalent to humans exploiting new environmental niches. 
Google is an environmental niche. San Francisco is an environmental niche. And so when those niches become well-established, because of the original um, like exploration of the novelty-seeking people, then that leads to this ossification of the niche to the point where it becomes established and then it requires the creation of new niches. So it's like, it's a sensible mechanism and it makes sense to me why that would happen and why, um, you know, we would have these people who, why, why we'd have this mechanism, you know, it, it allows for essentially greater, greater use of all environmental available niches and also um, creation of new niches. What do you think if we open this up for discussion? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so everybody, we should move over to the discussion channel. I will see you soon. So anyone who has questions, feel free to ask at any point. Yeah, so uh, I believe you're a fan. Of, um, you've read Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Uh, yeah, you're, you're kind of hopping in and out, but yes, I have read Thus Spoke Zarathustra. So there's one part, I think it's chapter, we talked about loneliness a little bit, but um, do you, dedicated where he basically talks about how loneliness is basically what fuels would you agree yeah no Nietzsche is first of all I think that Nietzsche um, if he was not bipolar he was on the spectrum um, there's like pretty strong evidence for that just in terms of his like creative output um, and his like tendencies that he had some form of bipolar. Um, and like th I, this like tendency to like kind of anachronistically label uh, artists and writers as bipolar after they died. I'm not sure I'm in love with that. I don't really, but I think it's like interesting to do. Um, for example, they, they trace like Virginia Woolf, her periods of highest creativity were associated with her periods with hypomanic tendencies. Um, they noticed that Emily Dickinson produced almost all of her, like a huge amount of her creative work during a three year period of hypomania. Um, and like these people, like the prevalence of bipolar among famous creative people is very high, um, much higher than average. And like, for example, professors with, um, professors with bipolar were rated as more creative in groups of people. The frequency of being labeled as creative for the bipolar population was about 8%, whereas for the average population, it was about 1%. Um, there's this great paper called Touched by Fire, or no, it's called um, Creativity and Bipolar Touched by Fire or something like that. You can Google it. Um, something similar to this, um, there was a study that noted there's a positive correlation with IQ and creativity which ended around 120. Past 120, it no longer correlates with being. Ended around 120 IQ or? Yeah, ended at 120 IQ. The, correl the positive correlation with creativity kind of stopped. I'll link the study. In, um, yeah, I'd love to link the study. For a second, I thought you were saying 120 AD, and I was like, what? <laughs> How does that make sense? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think that um, definitely 
part of what explains creativity is an association between what's called disinhibition, which is a personality trait, but it's also associated with mental illness and high intelligence. Um, you, you are likely to be creative if you have the combination of those traits and also a personality that's conducive to creativity, which means high extroversion, high openness to experience, um, and reasonably high conscientiousness, although there's a big trade-off between conscientiousness and openness to experience. Like the more conscientious or organized you are, the less likely you are to be creative, um, the less likely you are to be open to experience. So there's a trade-off between those two, but you have to have some level of conscientiousness that allows you to produce work, essentially, to produce um, like art, to produce writing, uh, which require commitment and like high levels of grit or drive. Um, there's some really interesting research on this, but I think that Nietzsche illustrates this as well. I mean, he talks a lot about how isolation is essential, um, to develop creativity. You essentially have to listen to the sound of your own voice. You have to stop reading books. You have to stop listening to other people. You have to isolate yourself. And he practiced this, you know, he like, he went to Sils Maria in Switzerland. He renounced his German citizenship and he essentially just hung out in Switzerland for years, um, and his, the 10 most creative years of his life from 1889 to, oh wait, no. Uh, no, he went, wait a second. I'm getting the years confused. I think it's 1879 to 1889 were his most creative years where he wrote a book a year for those 10 years, um, including Thus Big Zarathustra. And he essentially wanted to induce madness in himself. And this is, this is kind of my theory. Um, I don't think it's like overwhelmingly clear that this is true, but I think that Nietzsche understood the benefits of madness, um, the benefits of this like hypomanic tendency, which is encouraged by social isolation, because when you have social isolation, you don't have as much of the negative effects of essentially social feedback, which are, always encourage conformity. They always encourage um, the opposite of hypomania. Um, and so for him, maybe it was necessary to be isolated in order to do these things. And they're like really funny stories about Nietzsche. Like he, he hung out in his room um, writing a lot. And then he also went on hikes every day in the mountains of the Swiss Alps. But one day his like housekeeper peeked into his door and saw him like dancing naked in his room. Um, and like, who knows if this anecdote is true. I think it is definitely true. <laughs> Just like Nietzsche's personality. But um yeah, there's this like it allowed him to be creative and essentially like nonconformist in a way that only social isolation can produce. And I think that you know social isolation is also associated with higher frequency of mania and um, hypomania. I'd expect, and so yes, uh, I definitely agree. Isolation is good for creativity in some ways, although it can also lead to delusion. Yes, yeah. I think you need a good foundation before you decide to isolate. Yeah. And you also need to be, this is kind of hard, but like you need to be intelligent, right? If you, if you are not intelligent enough to produce the creative work, then it will often just manifest as delusion. Um, yeah. So like Nietzsche was likely a genius. Um, he also had like an incredible education. He was, you know, he was a professor by the age of 21 or 23, maybe 26. No, it was 26. Yeah. <laughs> but um, essentially like the youngest professor in all of Germany, and he like didn't even have to do a graduate exam to do it. Um, he was like an incredible philologist. He had this really strong background. He, he essentially, he knew the rules um, and he also knew how to break them. And I think that's essential to creativity is to like know the rules of your respective field, to be an expert in that field um, and then be able to break those rules. But also it requires um, a level of intelligence. Whereas if you, if you don't have that, then it, 
kind of leads to delusion or it leads to, um, you know, potentially like you might have a few creative ideas, but those will essentially be shots in the dark. I kind of wanted to chime in and note that, like, I would urge people to kind of consider things like, like when we talk about mania associated with like productivity or creativity, I think, I think some of this could be like reinterpreted in a sense to where it's basically like when you are creative that, uh, it it either is mania or basically like you could think of it as like if you're producing creative content like that is rewarding and i think like there's always this kind of i feel like it's always framed as like you're triggered into like this like state of mind like almost arbitrarily and then you start becoming creative but i think uh i think it has to do with like you are experiencing like a really rewarding experience of life at the moment because you're creating. And like a lot of times, like with what I do, like I'll basically experience stuff like that. Like if I find, if I finally find something that I am like excited about and write, um, I'll do that. And if I don't get like much feedback, that'll like drive me insane. Like I will, I don't know, I'll just get depressed and crazy and stuff sometimes. And I feel like a lot of the things with like bipolar and creativity are stuff like this. Like I think there's a lot of other ways that the same pattern can manifest. Like I think in the core of it, it's reward versus suffering really. But like creativity is one where like you're basically presenting nonconformist material to the public and then... Like that seems like that's something that will get like that there's a high likelihood it's rejected unless you are kind of giving people what they want. I don't know. It's more tricky than that. Like the the, the world isn't yeah. so conformist, you know. But I mean it is and it isn't. I don't know. There's definitely a pressure for like general generally society will urge for conformity or agreeableness. Um, I actually think maybe a better expression for conformity rather than calling it conformity would be agreeableness. Society encourages you to be agreeable to social norms, to um, respect them essentially. So you can be nonconformist as long as you do it in the right ways within like socially sanctioned means. But to go back to your original point, I think that that's an amazing point. That's so, so true. Um, and it's something that very few people see. And I like, I think that you expressed it really well um, that it is the creativity that sometimes produces the mania. And for me, I think that's more often than not, um, like you described, like when I come up with a really good idea or when I have like this feeling of inspiration, like when I think I've come up with something really cool um, or when I'm just like on a new wave, I've you know discovered something else. I'm feeling creative that triggers a period of hypomania. Um, and I've like learned to adapt this essentially. Like you, you can learn to understand the way in which mania is triggered in yourself and then to use that to harness it. Um, and I think that, yeah, like there are often, there's often a conflation between creativity and bipolar where it's seen as like the bipolar causes the, or sorry, the mania causes the creativity when it often is the other way around or often it's more just like complex where it's like, um, it's essentially a positive feedback loop where 
the mania produces like maybe you have like a slight manic episode like a, a period of slight mania that's produced by some like positive incident or by a period of creativity and then that leads to higher creativity which then makes you feel even more manic makes you feel like you're even more inspired um and that can then accelerate and accelerate and accelerate um I think, um you might be talking about interpersonal communication how it uh, actually causes long-term potentiation um i can link some studies on this and like how that actually works specifically. Oh, sounds cool. Yeah, could you expand on more like what you mean by that? Um, yeah, so I definitely agree that yeah, LTP is associated with interpersonal communication. No, long-term potentiation is the strengthening of synapses in your brain through patterns of activity. And the way that the patterns happen in interpersonal communication is like imagine a model where it's a sender, receiver, and a f- the sender is usually the conscious part of your mind, and the receiver is the un- unconscious like imagine like a supercomputer inside of you that um can air or that sort of um if you've ever been playing a mobile game on your phone and you notice you kind of do better when you zone out that's your unconscious part of your mind so the feedback loop is the information you feed to it for instance when you're reading something and the unconscious mind gives information back to you in sort of instincts like a feeling that you might have like um maybe I shouldn't do this or maybe this is right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I think long-term potentiation plays a key role here. Um, bipolar is associated with higher levels of brain connectivity, um, whereas, um, yeah, like higher levels of, I think, I'm not totally sure, but I'm pretty sure that periods of mania can be associated with higher levels of long-term potentiation. Um, and, um, I think that the social element is really important. Um, and that like, and if you, I guess let's, let's, if we're thinking about the more functional question of like the more pragmatic question of what actually allows you, if you do happen to have bipolar, or even if you don't, what allows you to be creative? I think that first of all, like what predicts creativity is partially personality, um, partially like ability, or cognitive ability and partially social structures, but um, those are kind of given to you. And there are certain processes that will allow you to have higher levels of creativity. And a key part of that is like this level of interpersonal communication where you have to have validation in order to continue, um, or you have to have a very high level of disagreeableness, um, which is a personality trait, right? if you are significant, if you are sufficiently open to experience and sufficiently disagreeable, then I think that you are kind of insulated from the need for social validation. Um, and I think that Nietzsche is an example of this. You know, he got he got he got essentially zero social validation his entire life. Um, well, that's not true. Like in his early life, he was definitely seen as a genius. Um, he he got a lot of social validation, but like kind of after he dropped out of the University of Basel and he became this like social isolate living in the mountains of of Switzerland. He, his books were never really read until he, after he was dead. Um, he was not, he was kind of viewed as a crank. Like a lot of his, a lot of people in his, in his community, um, viewed him as crazy. They didn't really see him as doing valuable work. No one really read his work except for, um, like a few of his friends and like a few other people in the field. And so if you have a personality structure, that's that's shaped in a certain way in which you have high levels of openness to experience, um, relatively low um, 
conscientiousness, which is, I guess it just comes with openness to experience, um, high enough intelligence, low enough levels of, of agreeableness where you're disagreeable enough to be very nonconformist without that having a negative social effect on you. And I also think it's important that you have low enough neuroticism, maybe, to the point where your dynorphin isn't like kind of forcing you to constantly seek social validation in order to return your brain to equilibrium, where like dynorphin, you know, produces suffering. And I think that for a lot of people, if you have a certain personality structure, if you're isolated without enough validation for a long period, that will lead to levels of dynorphin that become so painful that you'll need to essentially seek social stimuli, social validation. And maybe that'll require that you stop your creative activity or essentially um, iron yourself out, um, like polish your, your personality to the point where you assimilate into the norm enough to be accepted in some social group. And in order for you to acquire the um, opioids, like the social opioids that come with social validation. Um, but I think that, there, like I said, there's a personality structure that's conducive to creativity that allows you to not need those validation elements. So um, I, I vaguely remember um, saying, quirky science, you're saying that um, basically during when the NMDA site is agonized at the glycine site, it basically causes long-term Am I wrong? Or does it increase the strength of your synapses, essentially? I think I read that actually on the um, GLYX, which is an NMDA receptor agonist at the glycine site, where it increases strength of So if mania is basically doing the same thing, then that means that through um, interpersonal communication itself, long-term potentiation So we posted a lot more on it and um, um, voice discussion gauge with the uh nmda oh ah, you might be away wait from sorry the, yeah. no i had well. it muted uh so with the nmda receptor it basically requires that you have the glycine channel occupied before glutamate can bind to the nmda receptor so and then that's when like uh they'll be like a calcium influx after that and stuff like that and like long-term potentiation can happen um sorry i don't remember what else you said i actually need to look into i haven't looked as much at the research on mania and ltp like it, it would follow that they have more of it but i think it's really tricky I don't know. I mean, probably my guess is yes, because I can't think of why they wouldn't, but there could yeah. be some yeah. other mechanisms that somehow maybe change that. I don't know. So essentially, this is what I'm thinking. If mania does the same thing that this drug, GLYX13, would do, which is basically NMDA at the glycine site, then both, not only would that increase the strength of synapses, which GLYX was proven to do, but hypomania or mania itself, when it occurs in your brain, it's also strengthening the synapses of your brain. And you can see what actually happens when long-term potentiation happens. It increases memory among. Yeah, I think LTP or long-term potentiation is also probably, or not even just probably, but it is going to be involved with like so many different layers of how the brain works. So like even if you think of like I'm pretty sure that when you have you could have say like long-term potentiation of inhibitory receptors that probably 
gate your perception um, and stuff like that. So I think there's like so many different ways that this would uh, manifest beyond just memory and learning and stuff like that, but also with like everything basically. Some of the people I was talking to said that um, long-term potentiation can actually increase IQ slightly, but I'm not sure about, about that. I would think that the mechanisms that are behind long-term potentiation, they, they are like there's research on NMDA receptors and uh, like like pr- pretty much a lot of the research on NMDA receptors is learning and stuff. And if you block it, like with anesthesia, there's associations with decreased IQ. And with things like theanine, there's been like studies showing that they can have cognitive improvement. And there's also like working working memory uses NMDA receptors as well. Um, yeah, so I don't know how many of you here have actually tried ketamine, but... Um, it's basically this drug, which is a cognitive, uh, it's a robust cognitive enhancer, would do the opposite of what MD, NMD, or sorry, ketamine does in the, basically making you super aware of your surroundings. Did you say cocaine? It's sorry. cocaine that's the cognitive enhancer? No, no, no. Um, the cognitive enhancer is G-O-Y-X, but it's basically the <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I haven't tried it. It sounds interesting, though. Um, yeah. Do you use it regularly? No, I wish. I've been trying to get my hands on it for a while, but it's a research chemical that um, it, there's this one company that was um, trying to sell it for a major depression. But um, I don't think it had both major depression, but it was proven to be a really good cognitive uh, enhancer, which you should probably check out the article on GOYX13. It's very interesting. Yeah, could you post that in the general chat? That sounds super interesting. I definitely think that there are some nootropics that are really legit um, and lead to cognitive enhancement. Um, and those are actually like, you know, one of the treatments for bipolar is drugs that activate the NMDA receptor and essentially like do long-term potentiation. Um and, you know, in bipolar people, these kinds of drugs can often lead to mania. Um, they can trigger mania, which is why there's a lot of caution in psychiatry of like, oh, no, like don't diagnose them with antidepressants because that will trigger mania, which I understand on some level. But for me personally, like mania is such a good thing. It very, it, it's just so rarely leads to anything negative to the point where I would rather just take antidepressants and like guarantee that I won't be depressed um, almost. They just raise my hedonic baseline and then have like a higher frequency of manic episodes. Um, I think that would just be better, but you know, psychiatry will not listen to that. I did post it in um, voice. It's just, I don't even, I haven't even find out where I could buy it. It's not on onions or anything. It's just incredible. There is also theanine, which probably is pretty similar. The only thing is that it also is an antagonist of the AMPA receptor. So um, there might be consequences to that. Uh, wait, did you, um, Blork, did, where did you post this link? It's in voice discussion. 
above the. <laughs> yes. Tank. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I see this. Yeah, I think. Uh, by the way, I have to go soon. But um, yeah, on a close, I'd say that in general. Um, Actually, Gage, yeah. Gage, do you want to have closing thoughts first? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, thank you guys for coming and listening in to the podcast. And I guess I should also shout out to the two patrons, Charles and Avi. Uh, thank you so much. You've made this possible. And also Chris, also, he's kind of like a non-Patreon patron who helped uh, bring back the podcast. So uh, thank you, Jeremy, as well, coming on to the show. And um, probably we could do some discussions again in the future. Yes, for sure. Thank you, Gage. This is great. Um, as like a closing wrap-up on Mania, Mania is, um, you know, Mania is a pretty incredible experience. It can make you feel like you're bursting at the seams with energy and like you'll spontaneously combust if you don't let it all out. Um, it can make you feel like you're playing the greatest game ever created, like you're soaring above everyone else. Um, it can feel sometimes like being woken up by a higher power or guided by something. Um, it's kind of like a cheat code to instant like feelings of inspiration. Um, but you know, it also has these difficulties associated with it. And I would say that as like a call, a call to our society is like, we need to restructure the way we think about mental disorders. If we want to really harness them for all of their like beautiful life enhancing effects and prevent their more, um, you know, devastating elements. And right now, we are not doing that. We're doing the opposite. We are essentially structuring our society in a way that optimizes for the, um, for pain of like mentally ill people for the, for the harm, for harm to mentally ill people. And so that requires significant restructuring of our mental health system in order to prevent that. That is beautiful and agreed a hundred percent. Uh, thank you for coming on. Yeah, amazing. Thanks, Gage. Bye, everyone. See you later. Yeah.